morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Jenny Lam. On today's program, we're taking a look at how best to support teens who question their gender identity. A recent case at an international school made the news after a counsellor allegedly encouraged a girl to transition to a transgender male while hiding that from her parents. Reports say the girl eventually decided against transitioning and has since moved to a different school. This case highlights the difficulty in helping teens who may suffer from gender dysphoria, where they feel they have a different gender identity from their biological sex. So what role should teachers, parents and counsellors play? Are they sufficiently informed about this very complex matter? And who can they turn to for help? After 9.45, we'll speak to the mask and PPE organisation to get their reaction on the scrapping of the mask mandate. So let us know what you think. You can leave us a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233-88266. Now joining our discussion this morning will be Dr. Brenda Allegre, a gender studies lecturer at the University of Hong Kong, Liam Mack, the chairman of Quarks, a trans youth organisation and Sky Sue, the Executive Director of Kelly Support Group. Now let's uh, first start with you, Liam. Um, can you first explain what gender dysphoria is and how common is it among teenagers? Hello. Um, so gender dysphoria is, uh, means that uh, a person's gender identity is different with their, uh, gen, uh, with their sex assigned at birth. And uh, according to the... Uh, study from Family Planning Association, around 3% of secondary school students answered their uh, gender identity. It's different from their assigned sex at birth. So um, how do you decide whether a teenager is sufficiently informed to know that they have a gender dysphoria? Um, So uh, uh, I mean if the Students uh, themselves identify themselves uh, as uh, the the gender that is different from their assigned sex at birth. Then uh, they are transgender. But whether they know about the concepts of transgender depends on uh, uh, like the the gender education they have received. But uh, like. Uh, uh, like, yes. but their their gen yeah their their gender identity cannot be forced to be, uh, and it is only uh, referred to themselves usually. Yeah, yeah. So, um, I mean, gender development is very complex. You know, for mm-hmm. for for somebody coming into puberty, anything between age nine to sixteen, and and beyond that after puberty. Um, what do you, what do you think the difference is between somebody who's going through puberty and somebody's who's um, come out of puberty as far as gender dysphoria identification is concerned? Um, uh, I think if uh, a person is going through uh, puberty, they may be exploring their uh, um, uh, sex sexual orientations or uh, exploring uh, their uh, uh, experiencing the changes in their uh, body. But uh, I think it doesn't uh, mean that uh, they're, uh, it, it doesn't 
uh, affect their uh, gender identity um, because gender identity development is usually, uh, 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 is formed and stabilized as around the age of two to four. And in my own experience, I uh, knew that I am I, I my gender identity is different from my assigned sex at birth at around that age too. So you said between two to four years old. Where is that um, information from? Uh, it is from, uh, I think it's from uh, some psychology uh, 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 principle, yeah. Because uh, gender identity development is, uh, uh, yeah. Okay, so, so I mean, you know, gender identity, it's, it's, it's changes through the development of the brain as well um, as a as a person mature um, do you do we so how do you assess whether a person is mature enough to be able to express what they feel about gender um, I think if we are uh, uh, referring to the current medical system of Hong Kong um, usually uh, it, it does not have an exactly age range, but uh, in triset, triset clinic, uh, you can bring your child to the uh, uh, doctors who treat uh, uh, gen, uh, uh, who who supports gen, uh, transgender people, and uh, they will have a uh, official uh, assessment to the children. Yeah. Right. And Liam, um, earlier on, you said uh, um, children they they will probably be able to know if uh, uh, if they, they want to uh, change their gender between the age of uh, two to four. And I just want to share this uh, uh, message or this comment on our Facebook page by Dan. And then he, he actually uh, has a link uh, of an article in the Daily Mail. And he's, he's actually said uh, four out of five, is it, uh, of uh, children. Um, they actually change their mind later on. Have you have you have you um, heard about that? I mean, how common is that? Uh, I think um, you mean around the age of four to five. No, four out of five children uh, end four. up changing their mind later on. Oh, um, is that um, so? Is 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 there any data or uh, is it in uh, a research or because currently in Hong Kong, I um, like. I, I didn't see any local data or research about uh, whether people de-transitioned. Yeah, I think Janice was talking about uh, the Daily Mail in the UK, and I was yeah. looking at the uh. National Health Service in the UK, and it's talking about, you know, if, if, if a parent with a child approaches the NHS with a child who, who might or might not have gender dysphoria, then they go through a, a list, a long list of appointments um, that, that happens um, over several months. Um, this includes family therapy, psychotherapy, parent support, um, et cetera, et cetera. In, in your view, Liam, um, what are the most uh, what are the essential services that um, a family needs if a child uh, is suspected to have gender dysphoria? Um, I think the family uh, also needs to, like, first, they have to listen to what their child uh, thinks and what they really feel about their gender. 
and the parents also need to be educated because uh, we can uh, we know that currently in Hong Kong there is no uh, gender education to uh, uh, let students or even the parents to understand about what is a transgender or even LGBTQ uh, plus. And uh, if the uh, if if the parents do not uh, understand what is uh, a transgender or they haven't uh, been uh, in touch with any of uh, transgender person, and they could not, uh, like, they, they, they might have some bias or misunderstanding towards the community. So uh, I think first they have to uh, understand and then talk to their children and actually listen to what they uh, really feel. And then if they really, really uh, want to seek help from a professional, I think they should get, uh, uh, go to a recognized doctor who uh, can talk to uh, their children and the parents. Uh, yeah, and it, this included some private uh, gender identity uh, clinic uh, in Hong Kong. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you, Liam. Um, we now have a Dr. Brenda Allegre, a gender studies lecturer at the University of Hong Kong with us, and also Sky Sue, the executive director of Kelly Support Group. A good morning to the both of you. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so, so right now, I mean, earlier on, we were discussing with Liam about the difficulties in, uh, in t- uh, telling whether a teenager or a child uh, wants to uh, change their gender identity. Let's go to you first, uh, Dr. Allegre. Hello? Yes, can you hear me? Yeah, so um, we're trying to go to Dr. Legre, who is uh, with uh, doing gender studies at Hong Kong University. Um, now, uh, we're having some slight technical problem right now. And so we are talking about whether Hong Kong has sufficient services for children or teens who have gender dysphoria. Um, and on, on we, we're waiting for... Hello. Okay. Can you hear me? So the conversation today is is whether Hong Kong um, has sufficient services for for people right. Right. children who might have gender dysphoria. Right, Doctor Allegri, um, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, I yes. can hear you now. Thank you. Um, we were just earlier talking about the difficulties in, in, diagnose, uh, in diagnosing uh, a child or a teenager on whether they have a uh, gender dysphoria. Um, yeah. In your view, I mean, how difficult is it to make such a diagnosis? I mean, are there many people in Hong Kong that can uh, make such diagnosis? Well, the, the classical frame or the classical framework is gate uh, um, kept you know, by uh, the practice of psychiatry. So, like, if you look at uh, the international classification of diseases or ICD that's produced by the World Health Organization, and in the DSM, or the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, Statistical Manual of Mental and Behavioral Disorders produced by the American Psychiatric Association, um, they use these compendia um, to, to check you know, whether a person or a child uh, manifests uh, criteria or um, symptoms, what they would say, gender dysphoria or transsexualism in the classical sense. And uh, the, the thing is, you know, if I will be very... Um, critical of that as well, you know. That is a remnant of um, um, the pathologization and the medicalization of gender identities and gender expression. 
which is quite sad. It's like only trans people um, go through this experience. Like cisgender people don't have to be given a diagnosis. So we can just imagine that if um, someone is that young, you know, for teenagers or for kids, and they feel authentically that they are that gender that uh, they, they, they feel, you know, experienced, but uh, that their bodies are just different. And that worst of all, if society doesn't accept them, that it becomes very, very uh, cathartic and it can be a very dissonant experience. And that's why if we look at also um, literature, there have been um, um, cases of suicide and self-harm that were inflicted over the years, you know, by, by young trans people. Because um, not only the society become very harsh to them, but then there may not be enough uh, places and people for them to look for, right, to so, comfort them, to give them that support. Right, so so this diagnosis, it has to be done by a professional, a doctor. So so what about uh, counsellors or school yeah. counsellors? What role are they supposed to play? It also will depend on uh, the practice in a particular place, right? so Hong Kong in the Philippines, let's say. Um, but counsellors are expected to, to be there, you know, to help guide uh, um, a, a trans uh, person, a young trans person in their journey and then also navigate whatever mental health and well-being issues that they may be experiencing. And the thing is, we, don't, we cannot guarantee that all the mental health uh, practitioners that we have there, uh, counselors, psychologists, psychotherapists, we cannot guarantee that they're all gender-affirming in their practice. Right. So the principle that we must always make, make sure is that there should be gender-affirming practice. So the counselor should be trained on the experience and narratives and the, and the, the identities of trans people for them to be able to navigate the, their issues. Right. Now, of course, uh, there are different roles that counselors and parents play when it comes to uh, personal issues or, or problems experienced by children or teenagers. And, and of course, yeah. they don't always share the same view. Um, so what happens if that is the case? Or, or do, do parents uh, have the right to know or is uh, confidentiality mm -hmm. more important? Um, Sky Sue, what's your take mm -hmm. on that? Yeah, so... Uh, no, let's go to... The, sorry, Dr. To... Allegra, let's, uh, let's go to uh, Miss Sue. <laughs> Monsieur, what's your take on that? Oh, Hi. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Um, morning. You know, this is it's definitely a very complex issue because the, the reality of us for our situation here in Hong Kong at the moment that we've seen uh, through our work at Kelly is that it's a very new thing. You know, it's only been a couple years that young people have been um, becoming more brave to really um, start exploring um, or even vocalizing um, some of their questions and exploration around their sexuality or gender. Um, and so I think in this particular instance, you know, we're talking about a community that is really new to the subject matter um, and you know as with all things when we don't really have the right information and we don't have everything at our fingertips it becomes a really difficult way to create good processes um, so for us you know for we we think that it's a really important first of all that you know, any kind of support that is given to young people is done cohesively, is done um, in a collaborative manner, and recognizing that um, parents have a role, schools have a role, community members have a role, NGOs like Kelly Support Group also have a role, counselors have a role. Um, and and what, that, what those roles are could really depend on the community that that young person is a part of as well. Um, so that's something that, you know, um, we, we are all still trying to learn um, with this particular uh, topic because of how new it is at the moment as well. So, um, Sky, can you um, tell us about some of the cases that you've come across and the difficulties specifically um, in dealing with them? What are, what are the questions that these young people are asking? 
Um, I think one of the, the difficult things that does come up for us is often, you know, uh, feeling uncertain about how they can express what they feel they're having a tendency towards to their friends or to their parents and families. Um, and I think at the moment, it's more of like a, um, a classic case of seeing that young people don't feel comfortable to be able to share um, or they're uncertain about whether or not they could share. Um, and so one of the things that we're seeing here is about how do we strengthen those relationships between young people and their support network so that they do know that they have a safe space to be able to, to talk about some of these things um, and to be able to be open in the way that they, they want to, um, to, to be able to explore this with people that they can trust. What's the youngest uh, you've seen of these, of these cases? Um, there's no specifics at the moment, um, um, but, you know, we're talking about, I mean, Kelly Support Group works with young people anywhere between the ages of 14 to 24. And this is something that we are seeing across the board. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Dr. Allegro, earlier we were talking to Liam Mack uh, of Quarks, which is an organization um, that offers support to uh, uh, young people with gender dysphoria, and he felt um, that there is uh, a lack of gender education in Hong Kong. What do you think? Um, just quoting it from my students' past and present, they would also say the same thing. So they feel that the, uh, there is no sense of sex education, that the closest that, closest that, they, have, that they have in terms of sex education is really being taught how to use a condom. You know, you know what I mean. Um, but uh, they don't really cover the range of um, identities, um, sexualities, expressions, and experiences that also must be uh, discussed when talking about um, sex education. Because sex education isn't just about sex and reproductive um, 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 organs. You know, it, it goes beyond that. We talk about the persons. We, we talk about the experiences, the identities. There are different contexts to it. So that's what our students see over the years. And that when they enter university and then they have courses that they take uh, with us, for example, our sexuality and gender courses, they feel that this is really their first extensive exposure or comprehensive exposure to sex education. So there are a lot of concepts and definitions, uh, you know, uh, terminologies that are quite new to them. Okay. Um, so earlier I was looking at um, the, the, the kind of uh, support that the NHS in the UK offered um, young people who might have gender dysphoria and they distinguished very clearly between the ages of 9 and 16, uh, puberty age, and those who are 17 and older. Do you feel that this kind of delineation is appropriate? Uh, Dr. Allegro? Mm -hmm. uh, personally, I think um, it's a case-by-case case basis. And one of the reasons that uh, they place that delineation is also because of the developmental process that the body goes through. So, for example, if there will be a puberty blockers that to be administered, they, they will have to be administered at the earlier age, you know, ideally before the age of 12, um, because otherwise the secondary sex characteristics will already manifest itself. And, and we're, we're also considering um, how uh, the client, you know, as they would traditionally call patient, you know, how the client would feel about the changes in their body, because being trans is different from person to person. So one person might have full openness in accepting the way their bodies are changing, you know, and accept that, you know, they're not really trapped in those idealized body types. But for some other trans people, they are quite trapped in those uh, idealized body types, you know, the, so what is masculine and what is feminine. 
and society at least in Hong Kong may may not really be able to find the queering, you know, of of the masculine and the feminine. Um, that's why, on my personal perspective, in the delineation, it should be a case-to-case basis. And again, going back to the question on uh, parents' involvement, I believe that parents should also be given, um, just like what, what um, Sky mentioned earlier, you know, it's, um, partnership, collaboration is very important. So I see the need for parents to also undergo some um, education, you know, gender and sexuality education with the counselor if possible. Right. Uh, and uh, Sky Sue, just now, um, Dr. Allegra, she, she's, I mean, she agrees with you that uh, partnership is important, parents' role is important. Um, but how, how do they play their role if uh, counsellors don't always inform them about uh, what's happening with their child? So how do counsellors decide when to inform parents about what's going on? comment on how individual practices um, or organizations will do it, but I could share, you know, how Kelly would approach it um, if we do encounter something similar like this. I mean, first and foremost, I think because we are a youth organization, some of our core values are very obviously confidentiality, not being judgmental, you know, being empathetic, et cetera, et cetera. And that's really important in that process for encountering and really engaging with that young person, um, which is something that, you know, it's difficult for for um, in different circumstances, but you know it's something that's our baseline. Now, when we do have a situation, I think ultimately it just comes down to the fact that we just follow the process of really um, um, looking at child protection as being like the main core. Um, and so everything that we do is about how do we protect that young person that's in our care, and it's our own duty to care. So, for example. Um, our main thing is that we would always take a preventative measure to safeguard um, a young person from potential risks, you know, and, and actually act on being timely when there is suspected case of, you know, threatening them or ha- them having some physical or psychological harm. And so that's sort of how we would delineate, you know, when different people need to be part of the process. Um, and it needs to be also clearly communicated and understood by by the young person that, you know, that these are our, 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 our um, sort of commitment to them to ensuring their well-being and their safety, that if there is something that happens in our conversations, you know, that we feel like really does threaten, you know, their, um, their safety, that we will have to inform different parties. And that's something that they would also have to consent to and have a, be a part of the conversation. So that's um, sort of one of the ways that we were definitely doing. But ultimately, you know, it comes back to making sure that all parties have in mind, um, particularly from our perspective, um, the child's safety at the utmost. So the ch- child's safety is the most important. Um, so, so what if, for example, a, a teenage girl tells uh, a counsellor from, in your, from your organisation that uh, she wants to transition to a boy? Um, how, how, I mean, what would you do? I mean, it's not life-threatening. It's not really, has, doesn't have anything really to do with uh, the child's safety, but it is a serious development. Um, is it serious enough for, for the girl's parents to be informed? I think that really depends. It comes down to that, you know, that the level of, you know, seriousness that it's coming to. You know, so for us, again, you know, part and parcel of having that conversation with that young people is actually ensuring about their mental health and their well-being through that process. You know, um, and the minute that they want to start exploring other options, that's actually outside of our remit as being uh, providing a supportive service. You know, we're not there to help them to go beyond, you know, just making sure that they're in that space. So it would be about referring them to speak to other 
um, professionals who are more um, experts in this particular area. Um, and also, especially if it requires them to explore um, with um, things that might affect their, their physical, but also their mental state and potential harm. You know, earlier, one of the other guests were speaking that actually medical right. doctors might need to All do right, this, so we have uh, to refer. All yeah. right, Monsieur, I'm afraid I'm, uh, I have to stop you there because uh, the news summary is coming up and uh, we'll have to take a short break. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's Sky Siri, the Executive Director of Kelly Support Group. Dr. Allegre and uh, Liam, we can continue our discussion for a bit longer after the news. And just a reminder that after 9.45, we'll be speaking to a representative from the mask manufacturing industry to find out how they are dealing with the sudden dropping of the mask mandate. And uh, if you have any comments, uh, you can uh, call us on 233-88266. Now, here's a quick look at the weather. It'll be fine, warm and dry during the day. The top temperature will be around 24 degrees. Right now, it is uh, around 20 degrees and the humidity is at 50%. Hong Kong people are able to go out without masks for the first time in more than two and a half years today. But a professor of medicine says that the end of compulsory masking means it's more crucial than ever for people to keep their COVID immunisation up to date as this prevents hospitalisation and death. President Putin has told Russia's Federal Security Service to intensify its activity against what he said was increasing espionage and sabotage by Ukraine and the West. Mr Putin instructed the FSB to strengthen security in territories occupied by Russia in eastern Ukraine. And the head of the World Health Organization has pledged to fully support Turkey's government in its response to the recent earthquakes during a visit to some of the hardest-hit areas. Dr Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus described the destruction as heartbreaking. I'll have more news at 10. Have you received influenza vaccination and COVID-19 vaccination? Both are equally important. Getting influenza and COVID-19 at the same time may lead to more serious illness. Receiving the flu jab may reduce the chance and length of staying in hospital. Protect yourself and those around you. Get both jabs early. Keep influenza away. Get the jab every year. Please visit chp.gov.hk. An electrical contractor registered with the Electrical and Mechanical Services Department must be employed to install an electric water heater. All electric water heaters installed at heights of up to 2.25 meters in bathrooms should be protected by residual current devices. For a shower storage type electric water heater, don't install a valve at its water outlet and don't use a shower head with a valve. Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Wednesday morning with Jenny Lam and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the line is Dr. Brenda Allegre, a gender studies lecturer at the University of Hong Kong. Liam Mack, the chairman of Quark's, a trans youth organization. Also joining us now is Dr. Mei Lam, a psychiatrist and a chair and chairwoman of the Hong Kong Mental Wellness Association. Good morning, Dr. Lam. Oh, good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. So um, earlier we were talking about uh, um, how about the difficulties in diagnosing a gender dysphoria. Um, yep. 
I mean, according to your experience, how long does it usually take? I mean, what is the usual process? Right, okay. Now, uh, to make a diagnosis of uh, gender dysphoria, it really depending on the age. Like, um, you know, sometimes we have what we call childhood onset or adult and adolescence onset. Now, I think, um, you know, the person come for an assessment and usually being seen by a psychiatrist, I think like, um, you know, the um, assessment would be based on the clinical interview with the person like or the child or the adolescent or the adult and also getting collateral information from you know uh, the informants including family members or you know friends and so forth and then like um, it, it can usually like it can be done in one or sometimes you know two sessions to make um, the proper diagnosis uh, because there are similar conditions which can you know t- you know can uh, seem like to be a gender identity issues but in fact it could be something else for example an orientation issues or you know a preference issues or you know so forth so yeah we usually make um, a diagnosis from clinical yeah based on um, seeing the person and you know interviewing the informants and yeah. do some ratings All right. what, what, what are some of the signs that distinguishes gender dysphoria and orientation as she just described right okay sure now with the uh, gender dysphoria so basically what we're talking about there would be a mismatch between the gender identity and uh, their personal sense of their own gender so in the other words it's an incongruence between one's uh, what we call experience or expressed gender and the assigned gender now so basically typically for um someone like uh, referring, uh early onset like uh, since very early in the childhood uh, you see that there is a strong desire you know for uh you know uh for for that person uh to be uh, of the other gender so if it was a boy you can see that like he wants to be a girl and then like um you know uh, if the assigned you know uh gender is a boy maybe like since very early childhood the parents or the mom will notice that he's heavily indulging into like a girl's play for example dolls and so forth and he also prefers to play with uh the playmates would be the girls like um you know the girls instead now uh so so that you know early sign and also like uh in terms of uh he wants to take the role of um the opposite sex like um you know the girl and also like um you know uh could be some dislike a strong dislike of his own you know sexual anatomy like um you know uh his private parts now and also like uh, there'll be marked distress if he was uh, forced into uh, the other role, like um, you know, in terms of clothing and dress and so forth. So that those are the early signs that one could you know sense. However, for some individual, we don't observe that many of these early signs. Rather, that there will be appear in adolescence, like because during adolescence, at the time of the puberty, that even face a bigger challenge because at that time a lot of social pressure and their peers will start talking about you know um, you know uh, uh, you know uh, relationship girlfriends and, and boyfriends and that would create a strong sense of uh, distress you know for for these people now usually it can I mean sometimes uh, it can be mistaken or confused by a sexual orientation for example like um, you know 
a female, like uh, you know, homosexuality, like he uh, he uh, or she has uh, you know, uh, sexual fantasy or like in a relationship with the own gender, and same as for for male. You know, sometimes it could be uh, like that, and also it can be confused with your orientation or preference. You know, the person you know uh, can be interested in both uh, their own sex or the opposite sex. So some of these might be you know um, an opposite. Now the other conditions is sometimes you know the person might prefer uh, to be identified as an opposite sex but that doesn't necessarily cause a person with distress and a strong desire to be you know uh, you know the other sex so that is uh, you know incongruity but it doesn't necessarily mean that the person has the gender identity, uh, identity problem I think this is particularly important during the adolescent phase but because you, there's a but, lot of challenges but, but yes. Dr. Lang, would you say it's quite difficult to actually di- uh, diagnose uh, something like this because uh, for example teenagers who may be confused about their sexuality yeah. or their gender identity I mean um, is there an overlap somewhere between the two? Yes. Now, in teenagers, sometimes, because I think changing from teenagers to childhood, you know, uh, I think uh, there is a strong sense of, you know, uh, having their, their their own role, you know, like, uh, you know, role confusion. Like, they don't want to be independent from parents. They want to do their little experiments, uh, exper- experiment to, to prove what is uh, good for them. Now, I think during the transition period, for an ordinary, like, um, uh, uh, adolescent, they might sometimes want to uh, like dress like um, the other gender, like more more neutral dress, or, or like uh, you know uh, they they dress in a more neutral way. Or sometimes they they prefer, for example, if a girl they prefer more you know masculine kind of activity and so forth, and even outlook. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the person has gender identity issues. Now, gender identity issues is quite typical. The person has such a strong sense since very early childhood that they feel like that, uh, you know, they're being trapped. Uh, for example, if um, their assigned sex is a male, they're being trapped in a boy's body, in a male's body. In fact, they think they, they should be a girl. You know, it's that, that kind of a strong desire, which makes a difference from someone who will have a role confusion, you know, where, when they're searching for their identity and the role, you know, in the community or in the global community, like in a typical adolescent. Okay. I mean, some, one of the decisions that has to be made, obviously, in, in assessing um, these young people is whether to have medical treatment, yes. for example, to give them puberty blockers. Yep. Uh, some of these are irreversible. How yep. do you know that the person is not going to grow out of that level of distress? Right, okay. Now, uh, thank you very much for the question. It is, in fact, very important. So that's why, like, I think in, in every community, like every, every place, um, you know, um, there are some rules and regulations for that. Now, I think for adolescents in particular, it is important to do a proper assessment. And it is done by psychiatrists, and also, like, the psychiatrist will refer to a psychologist for more support. Now, once the assessment uh, the assessment is done, like, um, you know, we confirm that the person has some gender dysphoria, and then we'll give them, you know, ongoing counselling and so forth. Now, I think for, like, uh, I mean, for the path of doing, you know, um, hormonal uh, therapy or even, like, um, the sexual reassignment, you know, surgery and so forth, I think that is a long process. Now, uh, and that usually, like, in Hong Kong, I think the rules is when you're under the age of 18, and it is not 
like um, you know, uh, you know, we we won't uh, suggest starting of that because like um, it's still minors and there might be a lot of changes. Okay, now uh, the side effects of blocking the puberty, which um, you know uh, can be used uh, for some uh, you know teenagers, and you know they have to be fully. I mean, uh, the the you know everyone involved need to be fully aware of the um, you know the consequences and the side effects and so forth, and really depends on whether or not the assessment of um, you know the the assessment of the gender dysphoria and also the assessment whether or not the person has the capacity to fully understand the complexity and the side effects of uh, the treatment and whether or not there is any you know uh, long term side effects, and then when you are over the age of eighteen. Then we start, you know, after years of counselling, then we start talking about whether or not, you know, proper hormonal treatment and also a resignment surgery, which is irreversible. And for a lot of, like, cases, they don't go as far as um, the surgery because, like, after, you know, um, the person with the counselling will have the experience of living in the opposite, you know. All right. Dr. Lam, let's let's, uh, go to maybe Liam Mack. Um, Liam Mack, are you there? Hello, Liam. Hi, um, I don't know if you, I mean, what's your view on what Dr. Lam has been saying? I mean, what happens at your organization? I mean, how do people get assistance from your group? Dr. Lam here, she's saying, you know, usually uh, teenagers or, or young people, they'll wait until they're 18 to uh, receive any hormonal treatment uh, after they get lots of counseling. What was your organization's position on this? Um, we do, uh, we only provide the uh, resources for them to uh, seek uh, seek help by themselves, but we do not uh, like we do not encourage them uh, as what has been stated in the news. And we usually provide uh, peer support because most of the uh, 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 transgender people uh, uh, in Hong Kong feel like they have. Uh, uh, usually feel like they have been uh, isolated or not uh, understand by their peers uh, uh, at school because uh, uh, transgender people may not understand how uh, the experience of a trans person. And uh, in our uh, group, we provide uh, peer support so that uh, like. Uh, but the, most of the people in our groups uh, uh, aim at uh, meeting people who are uh, similar with them. So they share the same experience. And um, uh, we also uh, 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 also provide some uh, activity for them to uh, meet different people. Because uh, 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 previously, uh, the visibility of transgender youth is uh, very low. So uh, uh, and and now we can find more and more uh, transgender youth uh, coming out or seek help from uh, from us, and uh, usually they are just uh, want to uh, get uh, uh, accepted by the uh, same community. Yeah. Okay, so so it's a, a lot of um, community support. Dr. Lam, I want to go back to you and ask you: Are puberty blockers given in Hong Kong, and how common is that? 
online from the public surface, um, there is a, a, a unit like uh, called uh, uh, dealing with the gender identity issues. And basically, the unit, like, um, you know, the person needs to be seen by the psychiatrist first and then refer to the psychologist. Now, like, um, if, like, uh, like the psychologists and psychiatrists, like, I'm talking about the public surface, there is a proper unit there. And likewise, in the private surface, like, you can be seen by psychiatrists and psychologists. But usually, like, um, you know, when the person, like, um, you know, after the age of 18, then, uh, you know, can refer to that specific unit. And then, you know, uh, we'll consider, like, um, you know, uh, help the person to understand their own uh, gender identity, if appropriate, you know, and then we'll issue a medical certificate of real-life experience of the person's identity, and also, if appropriate, we refer to special specialties, including yeah, right. I, I, endocrinology and so forth. Yeah, I was asking about puberty blockers. Um, you right, know, okay. These, these, now, um, um, puberty, like from psychiat psychiatrist's perspective... So that would we be under 18 years old, obviously. Well, we, we, we don't prescribe uh, puberty blockers, yeah. There is, those are not given in Hong Kong, as far as you know? Uh, well, I'm not quite sure whether or not those will be given by pediatricians, like, or given by, um, you know, physicians. But as psychiatrists, we don't prescribe that. I see. Okay. And, and right. Dr. Dr. Allegre, what, what's your view on this? Yeah. Puberty blockers. Mm. Dr. Allegre, uh, are you there? Well, yes, yes, yes. Can you hear me? Yes, yes. yes. What Can What you are hear? your views on uh, giving mm -hmm. puberty blockers, obviously, to people yeah. who are prepubertal? Well, based on um, counseling, well, at least I will I will be talking about uh, the Philippine um, perspective uh, because I did not do counseling here in Hong Kong. But this my experience working with young trans people. Um, many of them that understand how they want to transition their bodies that, and feel that they gravely need um, puberty blockers or at least any form of medicine that can help them transition their bodies. Uh, I think it should be made accessible. That's my view. Um, there should be that right towards accessibility and the opportunity towards accessibility um, for uh, puberty blockers. And it should just be under um, that monitoring, guidance, and supervision of the doctors. You know, you can have like an entire gender um, um, guidance team. You know, you can have an endocrinologist, a psychiatrist, um, um, uh, you know, a developmental pediatrician, et cetera, among others. Right, because for some trans people that is very important. But I also would like to emphasize that not all trans people want to transition. Not all trans people trans, uh, trans people transition. You know, not every, not all aspects of transitioning is about medical. Other aspects of transitioning is more of legal for some people, the legal recognition. For others, it's social acceptance. For others, it begins with being accepted by their families. Yeah. All right. Uh, and Dr. Allegre, thanks again for taking the time out to join our discussion this morning. That's uh, Brenda Allegre. He, she is a gender studies lecturer at the University of Hong Kong. Let's uh, briefly go back to you, Dr. Lam. Hello. Hello. We, earlier, we were talking about the role of parents and uh, the need yeah. for collaboration. Yeah. What advice do you have for parents? Right, okay. Now, uh, first of all, it's not uncommon for uh, parents are the first one who approached us. Like when talking about, in particular, we're talking about students or, or younger kids, okay. Now, uh, this is part of the counseling that we've been, uh, you, know, uh, you know, giving to parents. Now, first of all, we, um, you know, we explain to parents about what is uh, gender dysphoria. Uh, like we, we 
we express like we explain to your parents what it is and also like encourage the 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 student like for their own gender expression in a supportive way and also we explain to your parents that you know this is something not you know something not the person deliberately you know sometimes they misunderstood as you know it's kind of a delinquent or rebellious behavior but rather we give them proper explanation and tell parents how they can support to make to make it a more easier pathway for a uh, developmental pathway for that individual and also like uh, back to the questions that you asked earlier on in Hong Kong all the medical treatment given to under the age of 18 need parental consent and including like uh, what you mentioned earlier on now I guess like um, there is so much that we can uh, do providing support explanation and the reality and sometimes it's not easy for parents to accept you know what it is but usually with the ongoing you know counseling to parents and support to parents they have a better understanding of what it is and they're able to you know make it easier for those who have uh, you know the, the the dysphoria you know to to be to feel more you know expressive of their own you know gender and that would actually minimize a lot of complications for people with the gender dysphoria, for example, anxiety and depression and so forth. So the role of parent would be very important. And also the ongoing support, you know, for the um, student. And also once when they, after the age of 18, and when they're mentally capable, then there are a lot of life choices and decisions after they are capable to balance the pros and cons on all the decisions that they make. Right. Okay. I mean, all, all the psychological support, all, all of these things, mm -hmm. um, regardless of age, obviously yeah, um, age there is no physical yes. intervention. Yes. But in yeah. as far as you know, mm. how common is it for uh, people who transition to regret having some kind of medical intervention done when they're under 18? Right, okay. Now, uh, oh, under 18, uh, I'm not quite sure. I haven't come across uh, anyone under the age of 18, mm. but under the age of 18, non-pharmacological intervention with psychological support, we've been giving a lot of them to their parents. Now, I think... Uh, now, to answer your questions, I've come across quite a number of, um, you know, students, you know, with gender dysphoria. And uh, a lot of them, they're actually with, you know, years of counseling since, uh, you know, teenager. Uh, they actually feel quite contented and they're ready to make the decision, usually when they go to, uh, you know, tertiary. Uh, I haven't come across anyone who regret. Maybe I, I haven't seen people who are old enough. But I think like if in Hong Kong, like I think it's uh, globally across, um, you know, international too, there is actually quite like, uh, you know, to go for reassignment surgery, you know, as far as reassignment surgery, there is a lot, um, you know, of uh, informed consent and, you know, assessment need to be done. So I think first of all, like I think um, giving the proper assessment would be important initially by psychiatrists and also psychologists and giving the psychiatrists and psychological medical, uh, I mean, uh, the support to, um, you know, to be referred to specialists would be very important. But I think the age of under age of 18, we need to be uh, very carefully, specifically, because a lot of um, 
gender issues can be misinterpreted as uh, you know uh, as a gender dysphoria, which could be something simply because the person is going through a challenging stage of uh, you know teenagers, teenagers' life and you know all these uh, different kind of behavior. Right. So I think proper assessment will be important and a lot of support to parents, you know, guiding towards the acceptance and also globally, of course, the acceptance by the society. All right, Dr. Lam, we'll have to leave it here yeah. for now. Thanks right. again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Dr. May Lam, a psychiatrist and chair of the Hong Kong Mental Wellness Association. Many thanks also to Liam Mack, the chairman of Quarks, a trans youth organization. It's now 9.51 and it's time to move on to our next topic about the face mask manufacturing industry. And we'll do that right after this. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. Now, Hong Kongers are, of course, celebrating because they can choose to go mask-free in public starting today. But what about the mask production industry? To find out more about how the industry is coping, we're now joined on the line by Dana Wu, the chairwoman of the Hong Kong Masks and PPE Organization. Good morning, Ms. Wu. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Um, so, what's, so what's been the industry's reaction to the uh, scrapping of the mask mandate? We were expecting this given the easing of the pandemic. Oh, so you already expected it. So you're well prepared yeah. then, I guess. Um, uh, do you mean the impact? Yes. So, so, um, so let's go to, um, uh, so now that the mask mandate is gone, um, fewer people will be wearing masks. Well, according, I mean, that's what we think. But actually, this morning, there were many yeah, people wearing masks. this morning, when I came in, I would say 99% yes. was to wear masks. Yes. So, so how much of an impact will this really have on the industry? Yeah. From, from local mask manufacturers' perspective, as fellow citizens, we were wearing masks, so the production capacity will be reduced, or they will even close the production line. All right. And um, so, so what are these uh, mask production companies going to do? I mean, will mm-hmm. some of them have to close down? What's going to happen? Yeah, the mask was a necessity for medical care and are nowadays become the household necessity. Local mask production companies will strive to become uh, the approved supply, supplier of the government and the hospital authority, while they can also develop overseas markets. But in addition to producing masks, other medical or academic-related related products can also be considered. So what about the people who work for these companies? Will they lose their jobs? Um, actually, uh, at the beginning of 2023, due to the leaving of the mask mandate, our organization understands that about a dozen of factories and 50 production lines will operating while it is expected that only about 10 factories and 30 production lines will still be operating at the end of this year. So during the peak of 2020, we had 200 mass batteries, which created around 100,000 employment opportunities. But with the leading of the mass mandate, we believe that our industry will only have less than maybe 1,000 people employed, while the number of the other medical and epidemic uh, preventive products related employment will also decline. So what, what these 100,000 people, what did they do during, what was their actual job during this time? 
about the uh, producers and tech uh, code and also the sales, the retail store shops, including store. All about it. So, so one hundred, a hundred thousand down to a thousand. So ninety thousand will lose their jobs. You expect? Actually, we think at the end of this year, maybe just less than one thousand. Because, yeah, you know that. Yeah. So this is just your organization. You're expecting ninety thousand people to lose their jobs. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, um, how many of these companies um, change the focus of their business and manage to survive? Mm-hmm. Uh, since the epidemic in 2022 has begun to stabilize, local manufacturers have realized the need of transformation or development of overseas market. So, those pioneers who had the vision and flexibility to adapt to change of environment and continue. To operate are the successful survivors. Overseas market, nobody else wearing masks overseas. Mm? When when you say when you say you change to overseas market, uh, but nobody else in the world is wearing masks or, or PPE. Oh no, because masks actually is the medical necessity. So all in the world, uh, we have hospital. We have a uh, government. Uh, we, we, they, they still need the. Sorry, they still need the face mask. Okay. Uh, okay. What about uh, the mask uh, production companies that are still in Hong Kong? I mean, um, like you were talking about. I mean, they can't simply survive on producing masks right now. So, what else are they doing? Mm-hmm. Some of them maybe have uh, other other medical or epidemic. Uh, Preventive products, so that's why they can survive. They are not only selling face masks. So, so what other kinds of uh, products are they selling? PPE. Mm, uh, uh, maybe wet wipes. Uh, the uh, say, uh, the household uh, products. All about the cleaning or the um, preventive products. So. Uh, you, you said earlier that just in your organization alone, you expect ninety thousand job losses. Uh, do you know what 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 are the plans for some of these people? What what kind of uh, what what are they doing now? Now that they're losing their jobs, have they switched to other kind of jobs? What kind of jobs would those be? Mm-hmm. Uh, they may back to their original job, which is oh, uh, like. Uh, I, I remember in country county that most of our employers are from the uh, airport. Ah, because, yeah, <laughs> of, yes. Airport and also travel industry, maybe tourism. Yes, <laughs> yes, there are. Yeah, so uh, nowadays they back to their original uh, job. All right, and uh, also, and when you talk about uh, like uh, how some of these companies they are producing other. Um, products like disinfectant wipes. I mean, these are all related to the pandemic. I mean, will that be enough for them to survive? Uh, which kind? Are, I'm, I'm not to really understand. Uh, earlier, you said some of these companies right now in Hong Kong, they instead of producing masks, they are also producing other products such mm-hmm. as uh, wet wipes uh, or disinfectant wipes. I mean, will that be enough for them to survive? Mm, yeah, and. They can survive because they have other products, and some of them already developed the overseas market. And some of them are the local government or the hospital uh, vendors. 
So that's why they can survive. All right, uh, Miss Wu, we'll have to leave it here for now. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Dana Wu, the chairwoman of the Hong Kong Masks and PPE organization. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today, and of course to our guest presenter, Jenny Lam, and producer Christy. I'll be back with another edition of Back Chat tomorrow with Danny Gittings.